1: More than 7 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. Plus, MailChimp distributes hats for cats and small dogs. You can find out more at MailChimp.com. MailChimp, send better email. Hello and welcome to Working, a podcast about what people do all day. I'm Adam Davidson with NPR's Planet Money and The New York Times Magazine. Today, I talk with my brother-in-law. Yep. That's right. My wife's brother. I see him on holidays. If I had to move something heavy in my house, I bet I could give him a call. And if there was some major global catastrophe, he's also the person I could call because he has, I'm pretty sure, the single most interesting job of anyone I know. And the second David Platz asked me to host this season of working, Tony was the first guy I thought of interviewing. He is with the United Nations, and he's the guy you call when the whole world is collapsing. So what is your name and what do you do for a living?
0: My name is Tony Banbury, and I work at the United Nations. My job title is Assistant Secretary General for Field Support. Basically, what that is, is making sure that UN peacekeeping missions and political missions in places like South Sudan or Iraq or Afghanistan or Mali, that they have all the stuff they need to do their jobs. They have the people, they have the planes, they have the bases, they have the food for the soldiers, they have the communications technology, all the stuff that they need to get their job done.
1: And we are right now in New York City, we're high up in the UN Tower looking out over the East River very beautiful view but so so you're based here at UN headquarters but your work obviously it spans the globe how many missions are there out in the world how many people are involved in that you oversee
0: Yes, I work here in New York at the UN headquarters, which recently got renovated over a couple year period. And so we have a relatively nice new uh, building, certainly with a beautiful view from the 34th floor. Uh, But the work that really matters is the work that is done in the field to support uh, 30 missions. We have 16 peacekeeping missions and 14 political missions. Some of those political missions are very small. They're small offices of special envoys of the secretary general, less than 100 people. Some of the peacekeeping missions are are quite large, uh, 10,000 or more troops, a few thousand police, a few thousand civilians, a budget of a billion dollars or more. So the missions go the full range from quite small, like boutique political missions with a very narrow mandate to very large peacekeeping missions with lots of airplanes, helicopters, ships, uh, a ton of soldiers, bases, camps, logistics requirements. And we basically need to find a way to do whatever it takes to support those missions, give them the tools they need to do their job.
1: And when you, you mean literally like food and pens and bullets and... Electricity. I mean, L-
0: literally, all, all of that. And a lot of these missions are deployed in places like the deserts of northern Mali or the deserts of Darfur, where there is very weak infrastructure. So, if we need to send a battalion of soldiers, a battalion's about a thousand, uh, to say an area of Darfur in Sudan where there are risks to civilians. There's nothing there. There's no infrastructure. There's just desert. So we need to build a base, uh, start with a fence and level the ground, and then construct the buildings and bring in uh, power systems, generators. We need to put in supply lines for fuel. We need to put in the information communications technology infrastructure so they can communicate with the headquarters and the, the rest of the world. Sewage and waste disposal, um, make sure our gar- the garbage is disposed properly and not in a way that threatens the environment of the local population. So it's really complex to do that kind of stuff out in the middle of nowhere where the supply lines are maybe uh, 1,000 or 1,500 kilometers or miles, over 1,000 miles from the, say, closest port.
1: So what are you doing here? Are you finding ships and buying stuff? Or does the UN own all the ships it needs, own all the material it needs? How do you do that? How do you staff and and supply a mission?
0: Well, there there are two ways to answer that question. Uh, We make sure that missions either are equipped themselves to say purchase food locally to give to the soldiers who need to eat and we put in place contracts and they get it locally sometimes we do it ourselves like aviation we do all aviation contracting here we have the second largest air fleet in africa Uh, we have hundreds of planes and helicopters serving our missions all that is done back in in and you own those or you uh, we we, we uh, charter all the aircraft. Sometimes it's um, long term charter contract for a year or so. Uh, helicopters, cargo planes, passenger planes, uh, what we call executive jets for our our very senior officials who are moving around trying to conduct peace negotiations or uh, troop transport planes. We have a. a big variety of needs. And so our air fleet ranges from very small aircraft to quite big ones and a whole bunch of different kinds of helicopters. But we we don't own them. And so we, we enter into a service contract with a provider and they provide not only the aircraft, but the maintenance, the crew, the insurance. They, they kind of do it all. It's a turnkey contract.
1: Just walk me through what happens here. What are your days like?
0: There are, are four basic things that I, I do. One is focus on big strategic issues that cut across our entire enterprise. They're not related just to our peacekeeping mission in Mali or Central African Republic. It's how to put in place better strategies, structures, systems, contracts, so we can do a better job delivering the services we need to missions at a lower cost. The second, and,
1: and when you say that's one thing, is that meetings? Is that phone calls? Is that?
0: Well, it's a lot of things, and I've I've been doing this for for years, and it, it involves so many different um, elements. For instance, uh, we are putting in place a. Uh, We we have something called the Global Field Support Strategy, which is meant to look at our missions more as a global enterprise. The the total value of peace operations for the UN is about $9.3 billion, which by the way is over four times the budget. Of the UN headquarters budget, so we're, we're much bigger in the field than we are here at headquarters. You mean
1: the entire UN headquarters budget, not just your part of it? The no, whole
0: the entire UN headquarters budget. You, this big, massive. 38-story building that has all the different elements of the what's called the UN Secretary, UN Headquarters, its its entire budget here. I can go into more detail if you want, and, and maybe later, but just to, to, to kind of break out the four main kinds of activities, uh, it, it's those sort of strategic issues that cut across the $9.3 billion enterprise. The second type of thing I do is worry about Uh, And respond to and deal with crises or challenges in individual missions. Uh, We have to build a lot of new camps now in Central African Republic. The peacekeeping mission there is about seven months old. Uh, We're deploying a lot more troops. We have to build camps for them. That's really hard to do in the country of Central African Republic because there's not a developed commercial sector. The construction uh, sector hardly exists, at least for our needs. There is insecurity. There's very poor infrastructure, transportation. The port of Douala in Cameroon, where we have to ship stuff through, is totally congested. Uh, the local officials there are looking to get a lot of money out of us for moving our stuff through. So it's, it's solving problems uh, of an operational nature like that uh, for specific missions.
1: Okay, so, that's, so number one is big system-wide stuff. Number two is specific uh, missions calling in and saying, hey, we need help with this, we need help with that. So what's number three?
0: Number three is here at UN headquarters. There are all kinds of bureaucratic processes and meetings and um, just stuff that goes on in a very large organization.
1: I can tell from your body language and tone of voice, that's your favorite part. You love the bureaucratic processes.
0: Yeah. And see, the Department of Field Support, we're very focused in providing field support. That's what we're about. We're a service provider to field missions. Here at headquarters, a lot of these processes aren't related to that, aren't related to what we need for DFS, Department of Field Support, are much more related to the needs of a large bureaucracy at in New York. And... Those processes can take up a lot of time and a lot of effort, but the payoff in terms of providing a better level of support for missions can be kind of low. And so I'd rather spend my time focusing directly on those first two issues, but very often we have to be as a good team player and organizational citizen and colleague, we have to participate in, in those processes. Okay, and what's number 4? Four? 4 is dealing with just one problem after another that comes up. You know, one person after another comes into the the door, you know, request, "Tony, I need help with this. I need help with that. Can you solve this? A personnel matter or a financial matter or some difficult situation and just the it, not, not the big mission crisis, oh, we have to evacuate people out of Libya, but the the, the little things that just pile up and pile up day after day, they, they just come in in large numbers and land on my desk.
1: You mean just being the boss of a multi-thousand person organization? There's just people don't like their boss, people... Whatever it is.
0: Uh, right, right. Uh, being the, the boss of a large organization, also I think someone who tries to, to help, tries to solve problems. Uh, that That's part of my role or how I see myself as a problem solver. The risk, I think, in any organization, if you're a problem solver, people come to you with problems to be solved. If you uh, just create problems or are no good at it, they won't come to you. A- and there, there are lots of people like this in the U.N., hardworking people who try and get the job done, solve problems. I'm not saying, I'm one of those, but I, I know I just get a lot of problems uh, that don't really belong to me that end up on my desk.
1: And then there's this other dimension to your job, which is um, dealing with the secretary general, dealing with ambassadors, just sort of, you don't have the authority to say, hey, I think we should establish a mission in you know, Sierra Leone. I'm going to just go ahead and establish a mission, right? Can you walk through how that works and how you fit into that process?
0: Even the Secretary General can't establish a new peacekeeping mission in Sierra Leone. That's a decision of the Security Council the Security Council will ask the Secretary General for his views on, say, uh, a crisis. Uh, they'll say, Secretary General, please give us recommendations on establishing a peacekeeping mission, say, in Central African Republic. And then people like me and, and colleagues of mine, uh, we will work to come up with a mission concept for the a new mission in Central African Republic. I should also be clear, though, that I'm the deputy in the Department of Field Support. I have a boss, the Under Secretary General of Field Support. I'm the Assistant Secretary General field support. The way we basically divide our roles and responsibilities is he tends to focus more on the negotiations with the member states, um, a lot of the kind of policy committees and agenda setting. And I tend to focus more on operations and the field missions, which suits me very fine because that's what, what I like. But we're quite interchangeable, and I'll often end up briefing ambassadors and dealing with policy issues, and he will often end up getting involved in uh, an operational issue related to a field mission. We work very well together in, in that respect. Let's take a moment to thank our sponsor,
1: MailChimp. More than 7 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters and deliver high fives. The people behind MailChimp admire the projects that spread creative empathy in the world and creative chaos on the web. MailChimp also distributes hats for cats and small dogs. More at MailChimp.com. MailChimp. Send better email. So one thing that, um, and I want to get to crises in a sec, but one thing I've noticed about you and, and other people have told me about you, which I'm going to say is not true when it comes to your immediate family, your kids, but is does seem to be largely true at the UN, that you you seem to maintain this equanimity. You're not prone to anger or to like god damn it why are they they're stretching me too thin or something like how how do you deal with that every day
0: there tend to be a few different kinds of people at the UN. There are a lot of people come into the UN full of ideals and, and uh, they want to change the world. They want to contribute and they come in and, uh, in a short period of time, within a year or two, they just think, Oh my God, this place is such a mess. The bureaucracy is terrible. It's dysfunctional. People are disconnected from what matters in the world. And, and they're, they're so idealistic and are not, do not have sufficient pragmatism that they, they can't function in this environment, they just get frustrated so much and they're railing against the system and they end up leaving. Then there's a group of people who come in and maybe initially have a lot of ideals and want to change the world and then the bureaucracy just brings them down and they realize, oh, they'll, even if they don't work hard, they'll get paid the same amount and it's not worth fighting and struggling so much to get things done and they they become part of the furniture and part of the problem. The people who really do well in the UN are those who maintain their ideals and their commitment to make the world a better place and who believe in the organization's great value, the UN's great value, but are pragmatic enough to figure out how to make it work and understand that there's still going to be problems out there. The UN's full of faults, but for all its faults, it's represents a unique tool for the world and a great, great thing for the world to have at its disposal to help deal with problems around the world. And so I I hope I fall into that category where I maintain my ideals about the United Nations and, and my great hopes for its ability to serve humanity, but am pragmatic enough to say, "Okay, let's figure out how to make it work and make it do its best taking into account all its flaws.
1: And we'll get to the big crises, but you travel, how often? like just in your regular DFS job, how, how much of the year are you traveling? It seem, I mean, it does seem to me you travel a
0: lot. I, I, yeah, I travel a lot. It's it's up and down, and so I might not travel at all for four, six weeks, and then I'll travel for three out of four weeks. So I've been here for the past uh, month or so, and I'm about to go away for 10 days, come back for a little bit, go away some more. Um, so it... it varies and they're they're basically two kinds of travel. One kind of travel is to places like the deserts of northern Mali, which I actually find the most interesting. It's really good. But other kinds are like to fancy meetings somewhere. And so I'm going to be in uh, in the next few weeks. I'll be in Oxford. I'm going to be in Turin. And I'm going to be in Montreux uh, for very high-level meetings that I've been in- invited to, including with the Secretary General and the top officials of the organization in, in Montreux. We-, he- we meet once a year, the Secretary General convenes all the heads of peacekeeping missions and political missions from around the world. Very interesting meeting, very uh, engaged discussion. uh, But of course, very different than say, a field visit to Darfur.
1: Um, And I've seen you travel in the field, like you're, you usually have like, several bodyguards, it's kind of a a big deal, like you're a target in these war uh, in, in these troubled areas.
0: It, it, it varies. I mean, certainly in uh, Turin, I'm not going to have uh, a bodyguard. But if uh, I go to northern Mali or someplace like that, yeah, they, the security folks do an assessment and usually they'll throw a few bodyguards at me.
1: What are the big crises that you are sort of, what's the word, seconded to, to run the operations of?
0: I, I've been in this job for the past five years, a little more than five years. Before that, I was the Asia regional director for the UN World Food Program, and there, yes, I was very involved in the tsunami response, very involved in the response to Cyclone Nargis, which never got nearly the attention the tsunami did, but basically the same number of people were killed, over 200,000 people killed from this cyclone in, in Burma, and that was a huge and challenging response. Here in this job, in the last five years, there have been four times where the Secretary General has, yes, pulled me out of the job and said, please go do. Um, The first time was immediately after the earthquake in Haiti. Uh, Absolutely devastating. More than 200,000 people killed. Also the largest single loss of life for the United Nations in any single incident. 102 UN personnel uh, killed. Our headquarters destroyed. Friends of mine killed. Um, And I went down there just a couple days after the earthquake as the deputy head of the peacekeeping mission, but basically in charge of the operational response and redirecting the, the mission to the, the needs of responding to the, the, the crisis that confronted us. Uh,
1: and, and in Haiti, because I spent a lot of time down there and a lot of time with you, is UN peacekeeping in Haiti is, is probably unlike UN anywhere else in the world. I mean, it's a huge, huge force in the country. It, it, it probably had more capabilities than the government did. So it was, your job was enormous. I mean, I, I watched you do it. It was, it was an incredibly difficult and challenging job.
0: It was the most difficult and challenging job I had ever experienced at least up until to that time the the capital of the country have been absolutely devastated. Port-au-Prince, the, 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 the tr- one of the many tragic aspects of that uh, earthquake was it struck right at the capital, a dagger in the heart of the country, destroyed the city. Um, it happened in the late afternoon when a lot of government employees had gone home, but the hard working, dedicated ones were still at their desk and a lot of them were killed. Um, and the UN did have a large, pe- just by coincidence, peacekeepers aren't normally those that get sent to respond to a natural disaster but because we were there of course uh, we did essentially what we decided as soon as we got there was we need to totally redirect all aspects and capabilities of the mission to the earthquake response basically saving lives, so supporting all humanitarian activities, et cetera, um, and also to rebuilding the capability of the mission and taking care of uh, the mission staff who had been there and who were so traumatized, A 100 of their colleagues all of a sudden dead, uh, many lost very close friends that they had worked with a long time, some lost spouses, children, just terrible tragic stories. And so we had to take care of our own people while we brought in a lot of new uh, colleagues to, to really run the response. While you're
1: hundreds of people with one toilet in really tough conditions, although everyone in the country was in tough conditions, but it, it was tough.
0: Those, those were probably the most difficult working slash living conditions I'd ever experienced. Our UN headquarters was destroyed. The buildings that were still standing in Port-au-Prince were It wasn't clear which ones were stable and which weren't, so our security people said no one can stay in them. So we were all basically camping down at the airport in our logistics base. Uh, I went down with a a team, and we all lived in the the office. There was one large room uh, with about 14, 12, 14 people working there, and the the men slept in one room, and then there was a side room that the women slept on, on the floor on cots or, or or whatever. It Outside that building, there were hundreds and hundreds of people, NGOs and all kinds of folks living in tents. And yeah, we all shared one lousy, stinking bathroom with one shower. It was really terrible and awful. And the lack of food, the food was terrible. Uh, it, it, it was a pretty horrible experience, but... 102 UN people had just lost their life. Over 20,000 Haitians had. The country would desperately need us. We were working insane hours uh, and we, we had to get the job done. And I think uh, the UN mission played a very instrumental role in that critical period in helping to get the country back on its feet.
1: More in a moment, but first a word from one of our sister podcasts here at the Panoply Network. Hi, I'm Mike Pesca, host of The Gist, a daily news show from Slate. Recently on The Gist, I spoke with Bo Williman, who runs the hit TV show House of Cards.
0: I told Kevin when we started, I said, here's my ridiculous goal. My goal is to work with you to create a character that will eclipse all other characters that you have ever played. Subscribe
1: to The Gist and all the other great Panoply podcasts at panoply.fm. All right. And now let's talk about your last job, which probably was your most important job, I would think. Uh, talk about your your most recent non-DFS job.
0: Back in September now, Americans will be much more familiar with this. Uh, the Ebola crisis had, had spun out of control um, Horrible images on TV screens of people dying in the streets of Monrovia. Projections that uh, a million or more people were going to contract the disease by uh, January. Um, The numbers of cases increasing exponentially and doubling every three weeks or so uh, at the the peak in September. Um, And clearly... The crisis was getting much worse. Whatever was being done by various actors, UN agencies, NGOs, governments, it it wasn't solving the problem, the crisis was rapidly, dramatically deteriorating. So, um, again, the Secretary General removed me from my DFS job, appointed me as his Ebola crisis manager. I, I walked into my work one day and it was the same uh, in the case of Central African Republic, same as the case in Sierra chemical Corp. Uh, and-, and with little, really no warning, I was just said uh, uh, or told that, hey, uh, you-, you have a new job, guess what? And how
1: does that work? Does, does someone say, oh, the- Ban Ki Moon, the Secretary General, wants to meet with you. Does his
0: Does he have an aide come and tell you? How does that literally work? Uh, Either his. Chef de cabinet, what we call chef de cabinet, chief of staff, basically, uh, who is a very, very powerful figure in the United Nations, just like the chief of staff to the president of the United States, kind of that role. Um, uh, Or either the chief of staff contacts me directly or tells my boss, and my boss kind of hints at it and says, Oh, the chief of staff wants to see you. They think they might want you to go do whatever. Uh, So I I, uh, get a hint of it, and 20 minutes later, I'm in the office being told, Oh, we're going to. Uh, Send you to go do this or that. And that's what happened in this case. And I said, I I don't know anything about Ebola, public health, whatever. And and essentially, they said, Really, you know, this is a crisis. We want you to be the crisis manager. Go figure it out and tell us, you know, what you think. Um, And
1: because your job is not to be the subject matter expert, your job is to get the right team together, including subject matter experts, to, to figure out how to solve the problem.
0: That, that, that's right. My job is more of a, a, a crisis manager rather than a subject matter expert. It's like a, a commanding general isn't necessarily going to know air force and infantry and engineer military engineers and all of that, but he or she needs to know how to, the whole thing fits together and have some kind of strategy. Um, so in this case, i, I Did what I always do at the beginning which is just try and learn really learn as fast as I can as much as I can about the crisis the nature of the crisis what's really behind it what needs to be done what are the objectives Um, and so uh, and simultaneously build a team build that multidisciplinary team of subject matter experts from across the UN political uh, humanitarian human rights information security um, logistics all, all of that and I always say I don't want a representative of uh, giving you an agency like UNICEF or a a representative of the Department of Political Affairs. I want someone with expertise in politics or uh, in food aid or whatever to come together as part of a team, not representing their agency, but part of a team working together for the UN as opposed to part of the UN. So learn, assemble a team. And it became very apparent to me within uh, a week that what was missing in the crisis response was the role of crisis manager. We had a lot of entities on the ground. UNICEF, WHO, Médecins Sans Frontières, governments, NGOs, um, carrying out various kinds of good activities, running an Ebola treatment unit or doing social mobilization. But they were isolated islands of good activity without an overall strategy, without an overall coordinated response, without clear objectives. Hey, what do we need to do to end the crisis? No one could define it. No one had defined it. And I I realized that no matter what we did in terms of trying to bring support in, we could bring in Ebola ambulances or build treatment centers, but... To what effect? You know, we, we, we needed someone to kind of run the response, and no one was doing that, and no one could. And the the crisis had gone well beyond just being a public health crisis, and there were lots of logistics, humanitarian, political, social, information dimensions, and thus we couldn't just rely on the public health community to lead the crisis response it wasn't just about doctors in a treatment center it was much much more um, it, we needed a crisis manager and so i uh i was appointed on a monday the september 8th that saturday in a late night conference call with a one colleague just coming out of guinea from an assessment mission another colleague in london uh we we decided that yeah, we, we needed a mission. So I, I recommended that to the chief of staff of the secretary general that Sunday. She agreed. She said, write it for the secretary general. I wrote it up at home, the home you've been in, wrote it up on my computer, looking out of the water, uh, and gave it to the secretary general Monday. He approved it right away and said, write it up for the general assembly and the security council. We did that Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, it went Wednesday night to the security council and the general assembly. Thursday, the Security Council voted on a resolution on Ebola. It had the largest number of co-sponsors in the history of the United Nations, 134 co-sponsors for Security Council resolution, almost double the previous record. So 15 members of the Security Council, 134 members joined those 15 expressing support uh, for the resolution. And then the General Assembly voted unanimously Friday. The mission was established that Friday. Um, So we went from conceiving the mission to having it established in basically five working days uh by far a record for the united nations nothing ever uh, comes anything close to uh that Um, and and then you were in africa fairly soon after uh well right after the establishment of the mission by the secretary general the immediate question became, okay, who's going to run it? And I had a repeat of that exact same uh, experience with the chef de cabinet saying, okay, we want you to now go run the mission. I said, well, I, I can't go run the mission. I have my job here, my family here, your nieces and nephews, who are the most important thing to me, more important than uh, work And uh, you know, I, I just didn't see myself in, in that role. Again, I don't have a public health background or and they said no please just go set it up establish it get it up and running and and you can come back by christmas time this was you know by now mid to the second half of september uh, so i i agreed to do that and uh, a few days later went to Ghana, where we were setting up our headquarters. Two days after that, I was in Liberia, Sierra Leone, Guinea, and I spent the next three months uh, in, in West Africa setting up this mission, trying to figure it all out, what it had to be done, what should the goals be, um, and, and we established these very ambitious goals for case isolation and safe burials and all that stuff that the health experts said needed to be done in order to end the crisis. And then it was all about an implementation plan. What needed to be done, by when, who was going to do it, what were the resources necessary to get it done, where were the supplies going to come from, how much was it going to cost, uh, how were we going to monitor the the performance, the implementation of the plan so we could identify if there were gaps, weaknesses, where we were falling short, um, all basic crisis management stuff that just hadn't been done. And so we, we kind of put that all in place. And then
1: you didn't quite make Christmas, but you came home in, in January. January. Um, And and so now you're back at your job. Is that a letdown? Is that a, a, I don't know, how do you you adjust? Is it a relief to be done with those high intensity periods? Do you now crave more of it? Are you kind of looking forward to the next time you're working at that intensity?
0: The Ebola mission was definitely the most sustained hard work I'd done. I mean, it was it was the same pace and level as the tsunami response, as Nargis, as the Haiti earthquake, but it lasted longer. Um, we were working 12, 14 hours a day, minimum 12. Maybe on a Sunday it was 10 or something. Um, not a single Saturday or Sunday off between September 8th and January 4th. I mean, it was insane how hard we were working. Um, and you're right, I came back in January instead of December because the holidays were coming, it was really hard to attract people to to the mission to get them to work there, and I thought it would be very unfair of me and send the wrong signal if I was saying, yeah, people come spend your Christmas fighting Ebola, oh, but by the way, I'm leaving. So I agreed to stay until January. So it meant, uh, in the end, four months of work at that pace. And I did the math, adding up uh, just kind of, back of the envelope kind of math, adding up the hours worked on weekends and the extra hours per day. And I ended up working, and this was the case for many of my colleagues, uh, working the equivalent of three extra months in those four months uh, in terms of the the hours. It was really in, insane. So when I came back here on January 4th, I was totally exhausted and needed some days off and, to uh, you know, just rest sleep no i think i saw you that day and you You were i came back yeah you saw me right off the
1: plane yeah and you were yeah you i'd never seen you like that you were a zombie
0: i I was pretty pretty shattered
1: like you can look at your work in ebola you can look at the central african republic and there are you know not not because of you single-handedly you had a big team and You probably made lots of mistakes. I have no doubt, but there are thousands of people alive, maybe tens of thousands, I don't know, hundreds of thousands who wouldn't be alive if those missions hadn't been successful, right?
0: Well, you're absolutely right to say it's a it's a big team effort, and the Ebola response was very much a global effort, and one of the most rewarding aspects of that job. There were many. Was to see the global effort. It was great to work side by side with the governments of these countries. And not a government isn't a, isn't a thing. It's a bunch of people. And so working with uh, colleagues who became friends in Liberia in Sierra Leone in Guinea good people cool people and I was complaining because you know I haven't had a day off in two months or three months these people had, had a day off in six months government workers working as hard as any human possibly could I think and you probably get paid a lot more than they do I'm sure I get paid a lot more than they do um, and, and they were doing it for all the right reasons uh, and, and uh, working with NGOs, Médecins on Frontier, and I haven't always agreed with MSF on some of its uh, positions in certain crises and criticism of the UN. In the bullet response, they were great. Um, and, and I really enjoyed working with, with MSF. I spent a lot of time with them, working with the U.S. military, the U.K. military, the African Union, the Cuban doctors uh, who were there. Um, you, you re- I really felt like the part of a global response wasn't a un response it was a global response uh for very important cause and and that's very rewarding and i was also privileged to work with a great bunch of un friends and colleagues i mean really friends um the the team that i was able to assemble uh started being called i didn't choose the name but it was the dream team uh, these were you know mostly young people uh, but hard charging dedicated people who still had their ideals uh, but didn't let the realities of the world get in their way of finding a way to solve problems and so they were very hands-on, flexible, figure out how to get it done, no ego, no drama, just focus on, on getting the job done, doing what, whatever it takes. And that is a, it, it, it's a great environment to work in no matter where you sit. But for me, as head of the team, seeing people work that hard and really being the beneficiary of their hard work, in some ways at least, I, I felt extremely lucky.
1: Right. All right. I think that does it. Is there anything about your job, about your work that I haven't asked that you think people would want to know or that people misunderstand?
0: I started my work in the UN in field missions on the thai Cambodian border, working in in refugee camps as a human rights officer. Uh, And I can just say, after spending almost my whole career here now, 20-something years, the United Nations really is a great great place to work, particularly field missions, working for the United Nations in field, whether you're a human rights officer, a political affairs officer, a logistician, it, it gives you the ability to be part of a, a noble calling and making a difference in a place of the world where they really need help. And they're, you know, be a teacher that's a great job I've never done it but I'm sure you know you get also a lot of reward from that or uh, a soldier in the U.S. military there there are lots of ways Um, I always say to my kids you know a garbage man is providing a great service to our community and we should be grateful to them so there are lots of ways to contribute to society but for me the United Nations is, is certainly one of the best that you can find anywhere in the world.
1: Thank you for listening to Working. Next week, we'll have another great interview with someone with an interesting job. And we really would like to hear what you think of these. Please send an email to working at slate.com. We're still open to suggestions, too. So send us suggestions of who else we should have on the show. The show is produced by Joel Meyer. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Working is part of the Panoply Network. Check out all our great podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. See you next time.